Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully, you'll welcome me back next, next week. Uh, my wife is here, so behave yourselves. My wife, Colleen, is here. The book is not free. <laughs> 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 yeah. if, if you want a copy of the book, it's $10. That's what it costs us. And I'll sign it for another $30. <laughs> and then I'll, and I'll sign it for free if you're interested. So what we're going to do, uh, Lord willing, today is talk a little bit about this so-called conflict between science and faith. Uh, I want to tell you right now, it's mostly a red herring. It's mostly something that the media promotes because it gets people um, excited or mad or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's just, um, as we're going to see in this week and in next week, this is not the way it originally was when science began. And quite frankly, there are many scientists like myself who are professing Christians I'm going to be in heaven, so you know whether you like me or not, I'm, you're stuck with me. So uh, I just want you to know that I believe in Jesus uh, for my salvation, and so that's, that's where I'm coming from. However, I'm also a scientist, so I also uh, look at the universe, which God has created, and interpret that the best way that I can. And that's what today's talk is about, is the book of nature, okay, and what that's all about. So let's get started, and then next week we're going we're gonna to continue this and talk about something that's a little bit more, gives you a better understanding of why people are messed up with science and faith. That basically, they don't understand what science does, and they don't understand how Scripture needs to be interpreted. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. So, And people in the back, if you, you know, you can sit up front, too. I know it's a Baptist place. I, I grew up in a Baptist church, so I know how people sit in the back and they're afraid of the front. And I don't spit nearly as much as some people do. <laughs> so this so-called con- conflict between science and religion, um, it's interesting that when the scientific revolution began in the 15 and 1600s, the most of the people who started this this change over in a different way of looking at nature were devout Christians and that they saw the study of nature as just another way of worshiping God and understanding God better. And I'll tell you that you know, the punchline is that that is the correct way of looking at it. Okay? It's not, they're not against each other. Truth is truth. That if you look at something in nature and you find out the truth, it's the truth. If you look at scripture and it's telling the truth, it's the truth. And so you can't have them conflicting. If they are, then either your interpretation of Scripture is wrong or your interpretation of nature is wrong. Okay, so that's where we're headed. You may not be able to read this quote. Uh, you may have heard of Francis Collins. Anybody heard of Francis Collins? A couple of people. Francis Collins is now the director of the National Institutes for Health, and he was the lead scientist uh, determining the genetic makeup of human beings. So he's extremely well-known in the scientific community, and he is a devout evangelical Christian and a super nice guy. And let me read this quote to you. He says, One of the greatest tragedies of our time is this impression that has been created that science and religion have to be at war. Okay? And they're not at war, not in reality. So the idea has, has come about in the past, I'd say, 30 years, that the scientific revolution may have been set up as a byproduct of the Protestant Reformation. Cool. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. When I was researching uh, my book, trying to learn more about the book of nature, I bumped into Peter Harrison's book. He's an Australian scholar, very well known to people in the history of science field. And his book is called The Bible, Protestantism, and the Rise of Natural Science. And so in this book, um, a lot of the things we're going to talk about today come from that book. The idea is that these Protestant reformers freed up people's minds to start interpreting Scripture in a different way, which is what led to the Protestant Reformation, but then also paved the path for the scientific revolution, that they went hand in hand. Okay? And we're going to see, I'm going to give you some examples, that early Christians over the first, oh, I'd say, thousand years of the Christian epoch since uh, Jesus was uh, walking the earth, 
The idea that was that nature was not really worth studying for its own merits, but rather the spiritual allegories that we could get from nature. That was why nature was important to study. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll give you several examples. That nature in and of itself really wasn't worth studying just for nature's sake, but rather what spiritual truths can we get from nature, and that's why it's worthy of study. We'll take a look at that. Peter Harrison's book... Um, it's an excellent book. I don't recommend it, but it's an excellent book. If, if you want to read something that's very heavy and you have to read the chapter two or three times to get everything out of it, then buy the book. Um, it's, not, it's, it's very heavy reading, but it's, got, it's rich with a lot of great insights. Okay. And I'm, I, I mean this talk to be an encouragement that as Christians, we don't have to be afraid of science at all. Scientists, that's a different story. People, people are a problem. But science itself is a search for truth. And again, truth is not going to be a problem. Your God can handle it. Hopefully your faith can handle it. But trust me, God is not afraid of the truth because he is truth. Okay, so we'll see. So there's the book. It came out almost three years ago. And people who read it actually like it, so you know. <laughs> and it's written, it's written for normal people. Zondervan, when we started writing the book, with, I wrote it with Steve Raby, a Christian uh, writer, and they said to me that we wrote the first six chapters, submitted them, and said, "What do you think?" They said, "It's too heady. It's too. The average person is going to struggle with this." So we had to completely rewrite it. So it's written for normal people. My mother-in-law, who's ninety. Four has read it three times, and she really liked it. So that says a lot. Yes, yeah, says a lot more than you're reacting to. That's why my wife is laughing. So God, God feels really sorry for us, and so he, he's trying to, to teach us about Him and who He is, as well as teach us about ourselves and who we are. He does that through two means. He gave us two books, the book of Scripture. Okay, so that's, that's revelatory knowledge, right, from, from Revelation. It's things in the Bible we wouldn't have been able to guess. Yes? If you, if you think about our entire faith, it's crazy. Guy coming back from the dead, virgin births, come on. But we believe that is the truth because it is the truth. So we have the book of Scripture, but we also have the creation. And so this concept of the creation as being a book which can be interpreted. Okay? That God has given us the universe, which he called really good. If God calls something good, it has to be like cool, right? So it's worthy of study. And by studying the book of nature, we can also learn a great deal about the creator. So this idea of nature is allegory is certainly a biblical concept. God was happy with his creation. He called the whole creation very good. Okay? But again, as I mentioned before, the idea was that nature is really awesome, but you don't really need to study it to find out about its intricacies just because they're cool. They're going to tell us something about God, and that's really the, the primary reason why we would study nature. Okay? That to me seems like a kind of a limitation. If you just want, you know, there's more. What there? Who has a question? I'm not. I'm not interested in questions. <laughs> I'm just doing this for the money, you know. <laughs> yes. I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. So we have the book of scripture. Yes the big fat one, and then the universe is seen as a book. The creation that God has made, and as we'll see next week, sustains, is seen as a book which is meant to be read. And in that reading of that book, we learn more about not just the creation, but the creator himself. That's the, that's the concept of the book of nature. Again, it's, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked the question. I take it for granted because I've been doing this for a few, a few years, but this idea that the universe is a book to be read, that was a very, very well-known and understood principle 
back in the 16, 17, 1800s. Not so much now. Because we're trying to divorce this, our culture is trying to divorce science from God. And it can't be done. They can attempt to do it, but it's not going to work. So that's the general revelation. Yeah, the book of nature is, you could call it a general revelation, yes, as opposed to a, a revelation through the Holy Spirit, which is what the Bible is. So let's just take a look at some examples from Scripture where the Bible you know, talks about nature and, and the greatness of God uh, in Scripture. I'm an astronomer, so I, you know, I, I tend to pick astronomy uh, allegories. Uh, this, this Psalm of David. And remember that the Jews and the ancient peoples in general had a tremendously primitive idea about the universe. Okay? But regardless... David said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yeah, in our, in our culture today, when you go outside and look at the sky, you can see a couple stars. Yes? But you know if, if you go out in the country or go out on a cruise and you look at the sky, it looks fake. That's what your brain says. It looks like it's not real. That's what's reality. That's the real. And this is what all the ancients appreciated, that the universe, when you see the skies, it's really meant to be seen. It blows you away. Psalm 19 the heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. As an astronomer, I know that's even more true now than it was then. And Paul tells us in Romans one twenty that for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They are the unbelievers. In other words, the universe is a witness that God is who he says he is. And that's what Paul says. Unless you don't want to believe that. Now, just out of curiosity, how many people have heard of a book called The Physiologus? Anybody ever heard of the book The Physiologus? And neither had I. This is, a, this is a book that Harrison alludes to in his, in his uh, text. And the interesting thing is the Physiologus was written somewhere between 200 and 350 A.D. in Alexandria. We're not sure who wrote it. It might have been a church father-like origin. We're just not sure. But the Physiologus was a book that everybody knew about in the first 12 or 1300 years after Christ lit, walked the earth. And yet, what? I've never heard of it before. And so there it is. If you want to buy it on Amazon, you can get it on Amazon. I'm going to actually read all of it to you today. (laughs) Physiologus, the actual word, those who know their Greek, you can translate. It's not really the title. The book had no title. uh, But physiologus simply means that nature speaks, or the naturalist is speaking, or words from nature. Okay? And the influence of this book, the reason I want to read parts of it to you, I want to try to give you a flavor for what the ancients thought science was good for. Quote, unquote, science. Study of nature. I'm going to do that. And you'll see that as you start to read it and understand these little stories about different things, you realize, gee, this is kind of like goofy. You'll see what I mean. The idea that you can learn things from animals and plants and insects and stuff, learn about God... That's not far-fetched, right? You know the, the Proverbs about the ant, right? Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Young people, that means lazy. <laughs> Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. And then the lion, which is mentioned 116 times in the Bible, its characteristics are so great and strong that you know the lion is, of course, a symbol for the, for the Messiah, for Jesus. In Genesis 49, 
Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. I love this picture because the kids are messing. You've had kids, you understand that picture perfectly. And in Revelation, uh, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals, of course, talking about Jesus. And it's in, how, how interesting is it that Jesus is he's so indescribable that you have to describe him as two different animals, a lion and a... You ever think about how goofy that, goofy that is? I mean, in reality, one eats the other. But, you know, Jesus has these wonderful, cuddly characteristics. But, as C.S. Lewis said, Aslan is not a tame lion either, so you've got the two extremes. Okay. I saw between the, th- the throne were the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So let me show you just a couple of the subjects that are in the Physiologus. We've got all kinds of crazy. They start with the lion as the first chapter. They talk about swordfish and pelicans and the phoenix. See, you didn't know the phoenix was a real bird. Um, The viper, the hedgehog, the fox, the elephant. Amos the prophet, who fits right in there with all those animals. The heron that is the coot, I love it. The fig tree, the panther. Yeah, we're going to read all these. Can you see 36? Roman numerals, can you read 36? The unicorn, see, you didn't. We're going to talk about the unicorn. Cool. A little cow, an ostrich, all kinds of stuff. The magnet, I love that one, the magnet. What? Yeah, that's how important it was. So I'm going to read to you just, just one or two because I, I want you to get a feel for what they thought studying nature was all about. When you get old, you have to get supplementary eyesight. Sorry? Before. It's a good question. She wanted to know where Aesop comes in. He's dead now. <laughs> okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read about the, the pelican because I knew when you got up this morning you wanted to know more about the pelican. So, <laughs> The funniest thing is that these animals that they talk about, the pictures they put for these animals are like, did you guys ever see a pelican? <laughs> and the answer is, for the most part, they... They, they didn't. Think about that for a minute. That's part of the story. Okay, here it goes. So on the pelican, David says in Psalm 101, which is really Psalm 102, so we're off to a good start. <laughs> I am like the pelican in loneliness. Physiologus says of the pelican that it is an exceeding lover of its young. If the pelican brings forth young and the little ones grow, they take to striking their parents in the face. The parents, however, hitting back, kill their young ones. And then, moved by compassion, they weep over them for three days, lamenting over those whom they killed. On the third day, their mother strikes her side and spills her own blood over their dead bodies, the bodies of the chicks, and the blood itself awakens them from death. This is true. And then it goes through and, and it starts bringing in more uh, some passages from Scripture. So that's the pelican. It's in the Physiologus, so it has to be true, right? <laughs> now, obviously, you can see the Christian analogies in there, yes? How many people had ever... See, I know, your brain is saying, nobody's ever seen a pelican do this. First of all, you, can't, you don't even know how to draw a pelican. But <laughs> second, right? I mean, it looks more like a swan or a goose. When's the last time you saw a mother? Now, I understand the chicks hitting the young. I mean, you saw the lion with the cubs. But, you know, killing the young and then weeping three days? I mean, what's with three days? Yeah, you know what three, right? 
You think this story is true? What do you want, drugs? <laughs> But she doesn't kill them. It doesn't bring them back to life. Okay. Does that? There you go. <laughs> so St. Augustine, you've probably heard of him. He commented on this particular story in the Physiologus. Harrison tells about this. And St. Augustine says, you know, maybe the story, it's perhaps true, or perhaps not, but what counts is not the literal truth, but the spiritual truth. Okay, think about that. And then he, he attributes a fantastic, uh, talking about a fantastic trait of, of the eagle. He says, look, don't worry so much about the accuracy of the reporting in this book. Rather, think about the symbolic and spiritual significance of the story it's trying to relate. And so what was happening was that nature was being imbued with these spiritual allegorical manifestations. And, and so what was, true, what was true in reality in terms of nature, as opposed to spiritual truths, were getting all tangled and messed up. Are you with me on this? Harrison goes on, I'll read this because it's kind of interesting. He says, scientific curiosity about the material world was merely another species of sensual temptation. And now he's quoting St. Augustine. Beside the lust of the flesh, which adheres in the delight given by all the pleasures of the senses, there exists in the soul through the medium of the same bodily sense, a cupidity, which is another word for lust, which does not take delight in carnal pleasure, but in perceptions acquired through the flesh. The knowledge of the world is the fruit of this vain inquisitiveness which is dignified with the title of knowledge and science. Now, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that people get a, a almost carnal pleasure by studying the universe. I can never carry it that far, but, you know. So it's astounding to me that you can, you can get spiritual truths out of a story which at best is partially true. Of course, you know, you're not going to raise your chicks from the dead. Obviously, somebody made that up to make the allegory towards Jesus and being raised from the dead. So how do you get, how do you get these spiritual truths out of stories that aren't true? Well, we do have things called parables. Nobody's yelling at Jesus because he's making up stories to get spiritual truths across, right? So that there is... You know, it's a merit to that. But I want to show you that this story about the pelican, the idea of the pelican and being able to raise his chicks from the dead, that story was so ingrained in medieval psychology that it became an icon throughout medieval Christianity. Let me show you what I mean by that. Now, this, this, is, an actual, this is the actual cover page of the Bible, the King James Bible, published in 1611. And it's got all kinds of ornate, cool stuff on it. And what you can't see is this bottom pendant here. Let me blow that up for you. Can you see what that is? 1611. Yes? See, you think it's crazy. But that story, true or not, represented God, Jesus, raised from the dead, bringing us, etc. So there it is on the page of the perhaps arguably the most famous Bible uh, ever. This is a medieval painting from a church. Here's a crucifix from a medieval church. Okay, If you can look at the top, I'll zoom in on the top. Can you see what's on the top of the crucifix? So do you see how, why would they put that up there if that story wasn't what? Everybody knew about it. See, it was an icon that people understood, the sacrificial parent bringing the children back to life. Or, you know, in this case, it looks like they're feeding. Here's a statue outside a cathedral in Europe. Now, this is not a pelican. 
This is Queen Elizabeth I. But she's wearing a pendant. Can, I don't know if you can see it, but it's the, it's the pelican. Do you see how this permeated the religious thought of the time, even though the story itself is wacky? Okay. And the unicorn is cool. Sure, go ahead. Isn't it, isn't it funny? I mean, you know, and who in, the, who in the congregation would understand what that picture? Oh, cool. See, there you go. <laughs> Very cool. Now, you didn't know in the King James Bible that the unicorn exists in the King James Bible. A lot of you who are as old as I am grew up with the King James Bible. And if you go and look at some of these references, you'll find that the Bible talks about unicorns. What? I'll give you a couple. God brought them out of Egypt. He's talking about uh, the nation, the Hebrews. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. So God has the strength of a unicorn. It's pretty strong. Deuteronomy, his glory, speaking of Joseph, his glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. Cool. In Job, it says, Will a unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after thee? All King James versions. And here's the proof they exist. There's a picture of one. <laughs> here's the Garden of Eden. More proof that there's the. Can you see the unicorns? You see the elephant? Yeah, he's got a very. Looks like a horse with an elephant head. Again, I'm not sure the, the artist ever saw an elephant. But this is what happened to the unicorns. So, can, so this is Noah. You get the idea because it's two of everything. Here's the dead unicorn. He says, well, so much for the unicorns, but from now on, all carnivores will be confined to sea deck. <laughs> See, because that's what happened to the unicorns. Where did dragons come from? Yeah, basically, basically, it's mythology. We're making this stuff up. They might have seen the narwhal, which is a creature that lives in the sea, has a, a single horn. But you know, I don't know where I don't know where unicorns originated. But it's interesting. So now you will not find unicorn in your Bibles unless you have a you know the old King James version. That unicorn is translated as wild beast now. How about some more jokes? So this is all what happens. This is why the unicorns don't exist anymore. See, the boat, they're going on the, the ark, and it says they're, they're in the standby, and they're very nervous. I don't know if you can see that. The most nerve-wracking place to wait. This is a good one here. Here we have a unicorn tied up. Can you see that this, this is two people in a unicorn suit? And he's saying, we made it, Roy, we made it. And he says, shh. See, so, so there'd only be one unicorn, so that you understand that. And then this one's kind of sad, too. He's talking to Noah, and these guys have their horns cut off. And Noah says, I'm sorry, it looks like we already have two of your kind. And see, these two bears cut off the horns. And so. The 1030 crowd will get it better than you guys do. This has nothing to do with the unicorns. I just like this joke. God is saying, an ark? No, I said an ark. See, you don't want to learn anything religious. You just want to laugh in the morning. Okay, one last joke. So these are unicorn pet peeves. They don't like hats. They don't like low doors. In-ground horn is a serious problem. The young people don't even know what that means. They also hate Noah's Ark jokes. So Lots of Noah's Ark jokes. Do you want to read? About, you want to hear about the about the elephant? Are we having fun? Okay. There's a reason for all this. I don't know what it is, but there's a reason for all this. I'll just read a little bit about the elephant. I think I have a picture. 
Here they are. It's a better picture. This is the nature of the elephant. If he should fall, he's unable to get up again. What? How can he fall since he rests against a tree? The elephant has no knee joints, enabling him to sleep lying down even if he wanted to. So shortly before the beast arrives at the tree against which he is accustomed to sleeping, a hunter who wishes to capture the animal will cut partly through the tree. And so when the elephant comes and rests against the tree, both tree and beast fall at the same time. The elephant then cries out, and immediately there comes a great elephant who is unable to lift the first. Then they both cry out, and 12 other elephants arrive, and not even they can lift the one who has fallen. And then again, they all cry out, and suddenly a tiny little elephant appears who puts his trunk under the great one and lifts him up. It's, it. <laughs> I, I dare you to tell me that that's a true story. <laughs> you, haven't heard, you haven't seen that one, right? So, do you see what I'm getting at? That one's even crazier almost than the pelicans. I love, they also, elephants can't, they can't get down. They have no knee joints. So their legs, see their legs are like tree trunks. And then, so what's the answer to that? What? Hitchhiker's Guide, answer to the, yeah, that's the answer. And then they find out they asked the wrong question, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the wrong answer, too. So, do elephants have knees? How would you determine that? All right, so, and again, this is my whole point. I say to you, if you read that as an ancient person, you would read that and what? You just believe it because it's written, written by ancient people who are closer to the origin of the universe and therefore closer to the truth. And so they believed it. Your reaction, your reaction was, let's take a look at it and see. That was not the ancient people's reactions. Do you understand? That is something that you have gained through something called the scientific revolution, where you don't take things for granted. You say, I prove it to me. I want to see for myself. She had a question first. Yeah, but people say that about the Bible, too. Like, they make fun of the Bible for not being literally right. Oh, I know they do. They haven't, they haven't studied it. What? What's your answer to that? You don't believe it literally, either. What? You don't believe it literally, either. Me? Yeah. We're supposed to interpret scripture carefully with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Shall I give you an example? Now, I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But remember who his audience is. Goofy people. And so God has to use what to communicate with us? Words. Whose words? Words that we understand. Good grief. Talk about limiting God. So I'll give you an example, all right? In the Old Testament, it talks about God judging men by their hearts and their kidneys. Did you ever hear about that? Well, you're laughing. That's what it says. That's what the Hebrew says. In several different places, God judges man by his heart and his kidneys. Why does it say that? Because the ancients believed that your emotions and your intellect, your emotions lived where? And your intellect lived in your kidneys. The brain was thought to be a useless organ, which is why the Egyptians, when they mummified, would suck the brain out the nose and chuck it, because nobody uses their brains then or now. (laughs) Are you with me on this? That's what the Bible says. So if you believe the literal translation of the word, the way we understand the word now, you think you think with your kidneys. Are you with me? 
Now, if you go and look at that, if you look at modern translations now, and if you go to King James, it says God judges man by his heart and his reins. R-E-I-N-S, reins. Now, why, does he, why, why are they translating the word kidney for reins? Because Latin for kidney is renal. Renal failure, you've heard that word, right? Yes, yeah, see what I'm saying? So now we translate it, the translators will say God judges you by your heart and your mind. Because now we know the mind doesn't reside in the kidneys, but somewhere, somewhere. Are you with me on this? So it's not, we're not taking that part of the scripture literally because we know that your mind is not part of your kidneys, right? Because kidneys, transplants, and stuff doesn't change people's minds. Are you, does that make sense? So we have to, we have to read scripture carefully. Okay? Carefully, carefully, okay, and ask the Holy Spirit's guidance. And as we learn more and more about creation, we need to take that into account. When Jesus says that God causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil, he should have said he makes the earth rotate for everybody. The sun doesn't rise and set. But we still use those terms today. We know exactly what he's talking about, not to mention heart. I love you with all my heart. It's like stupid. It's like saying I love you with all my biceps. See, you laugh because you don't think about that, because we know what we mean by heart, yes? It's figurative, it's allegorical, it's not literal, yes? But your heart doesn't have any feelings. It's just a really strong muscle pump. Are you with me on this? Okay, so nobody takes the Bible literally. So they believe they think with their kidneys, okay. Yeah, so am I. I used to be a Baptist. Okay. Okay, that's all right. You had a question, sir. So going going back to the main point of that that picture of what you just discussed, you made a point, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe your point was that in the past you would just hear somebody say something and you believe it. But now thanks to the scientific revolution, we look for evidence That is correct. Much more so than the ancients ever did. The ancients were much more trusting of their ancient authorities, people like Aristotle. See, that's so completely foreign to us. We're, we're now in the generation where we had people rebel against a king and start a new country. Yeah, that's well, I think it exists. Don't get me wrong. There, there definitely is a process by which you rigorously look for truth and come to your own understanding. I don't think most people do operate that way. Would I it, it, it depends on, on who you run into. But it might, let, me, let me rephrase it. Many more people think that way than thought that way 1,500 years ago. But still, the way, of, the way of just accepting authority, when authority says something, you just accept it and don't test it out. Sure. You're reading from this book of an authority at the time. And what's he do? He says, this is the way it is. Here's a picture. Here we are in 2019, and you're saying that elephants have knees. Here's a picture. And we believe it. Right? I, I'm just saying, like, to, to me, I don't see, I see us trusting you. You have a picture. Good. <laughs> you know? But I've also seen an elephant, and I've seen it bend his knee. Yeah, we've all seen elephants get down on the ground. So it's yeah. So again, it's it's if you don't want to believe they have knees, it's okay. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> okay, let's continue because we're gonna. I want to get more into this. But your point is well made. Is that that there are still plenty of people who just accept authority. You guys don't have to accept anything I say. Do you know what I mean? My grandkids are gonna love me no matter what you believe. So, you know. So we answered the question about the knees of the elephant by simply looking at an elephant. And as simple, as silly as that sounds, that is a modern way of thinking. 
It's so ingrained in most of us that we don't even think twice. But it wasn't that way originally, 1,500 years ago. And so nature was being portrayed as in, in this book. It's nature's there. We interpret things about God from nature, even if the stuff we're saying is completely wrong and fabricated. doesn't matter because of the spiritual truths you get out. The spiritual lesson was what was important, not that the story isn't true. For me, that's a problem because does not open up our faith to all kinds of serious issues. Like, for example, what if the resurrection isn't true? What if it's just a spiritual allegory for coming back to life, but Jesus was never raised? You see what I'm saying? If that isn't a fact, then we're all wasting our time. And we have no hope, and it's just ridiculous. So if certain, you know what I mean? You don't know what I mean? If Jesus was not physically raised from the dead, then we have no salvation all of Christianity is a lie. It's all based on Jesus' resurrection, all of it. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, God, and it did not physically resurrect, then the whole faith is just nonsense. No better than other religions that are made up. And perhaps worse, because Jesus then, as C.S. Lewis would say, would be equal to a lunatic, because he claimed to be God. Which particular fact? The fact that he was uh, resurrected. That's where the faith comes in. Well, yeah, because we have to have faith because we didn't physically see it. So we have to have faith. But then scientists have faith, too. They have faith in other scientists. They have faith in their theories. Right? Well, I think, it, I think it's ironic that, that the Christian movement, uh, early Christian movement, begot the scientific revolution. And it seems now that the scientific revolution It's true. It's true that science is trying to take and make religion irrelevant and non-existent. Do you know what that's really doing? It's really interesting. That You know what God said? He said, don't make any idols. Do you remember that? What a big deal that was to the Jewish nation, making idols. So making statues, pretending they're God and worship. Right? I mean, you're, you guys would never bow before a statue and think it was God, Right? What, what scientists who don't believe in God now do is they have the ultimate idol. It's not science. It's the universe. And all the properties that God has been imbued with by Scripture, those properties are imbued to the universe. The universe had no beginning. The universe is all there is. They've made the universe the ultimate idol, and that's what they worship. Just something to think about. Now, let's... Good grief. Let's continue. I want to show you some of the um, scriptures that were printed in the Middle Ages. And so this is a page from a Bible. And I want to show you on this page how much scripture there is. And everything else in that image is a commentary by ancient authorities. Now, what does that tell you? Much like the Pharisees who made up all these laws to try to get Jews to right, not break the Sabbath, for example, so they had all these laws as to what work was, what work isn't, and talk about imprisoning yourself. Here you've got all these ancient authorities okay, saying all these different things about Scripture, and it came to pass. Here's another, just to show you. that. So again, the Scripture itself is here, and then the commentaries are on the side. The commentaries were starting to be taken as just as true as the scripture. This is the way it was when troublemaker Martin Luther came on the scene. And it was interesting, and before anybody had ever heard of him, when he was teaching at Wittenberg in 1513, he was about to begin a new class on the Psalms. Okay, and you remember the printing press. We'll talk more about that next week. But the, the Wittenberg, where he was, they had their own printing press, their own publishing house. How cool is that? And he went to the printer. He says, I want you to print up a book of the Psalms for me without any of the commentaries, just the Psalms. And the printer's like, well, 
that's going to leave a lot of blank space. And Luther says, cool, that's what I want. So my students can write their own insights about the scripture in the books. Talk about a heretical idea. What, to write in Bibles? No. <coughs> Is what heretical? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And so what he wanted was, he wanted people to be able to look at the scriptures afresh, interpret them, hopefully by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to gain new insights. Because the word of God, this is the way the Bible works. You, those of you who have been reading it for a few years, haven't you read passages a hundred times? And the hundred and first time you get a brand new insight you never saw. But that's, that's the infinite word of God. It's, you know, it's amazing. I read through Luke every year with my students before class. Not the whole book, just, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, five minutes of it. And I've been doing it for 27 years, and I always get new insights every, every morning. That's the Word of God. It is the living Word. And so you could argue that this idea of not being encumbered by the ancients, maybe being guided by some of their ideas, not tossing them necessarily completely, but not assuming that they're right just because they wrote these things a thousand years ago, but testing some of these ideas. You could argue that the the Protestant Reformation began with this not just accepting authority because it's the authority. You can see Martin Luther in this. Martin Luther said, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reasoning, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Heretic. Now, there was a lot of stuff going on in the 15 and 1600s. What was, what was discovered in 1492? At the end of the 15th century, this crazy guy named Columbus discovered the New World, at least in the sense that it was revealed to Europe and so on. And that's not what he was trying to do. He was trying to make money going to where? India. India, which is why he called the people living there. Yeah, which now if we call people that, we, they get yelled at us. So it's, you know, can't do that. They discovered all kinds of stuff in the New World, not just people they'd never heard of before, but all kinds of plants and animals that they had never seen before. How cool is that? Tobacco is a New World product. And they thought tobacco was going to be a new cure for all kinds of great diseases. They did. So you can't see this slide too well, but all kinds of interesting things they discovered, like tobacco and peppers and pumpkins and corn, right? And then some things from Europe were sent over, as well as a bunch of diseases which the poor Native Americans never had any defense against, which was very bad. Now, so what? What's that got to do with this? Look, just the fact that there was a new world was a huge blow to ancient authorities, which never even guessed that there would be more to discover in the world, right? I mean, that's just complete surprise. Not only is there land we've never discovered, a huge amount of land, but all kinds of new flora and fauna and so on. And so people are starting to realize, gee, maybe we should start studying nature and all these different things. Maybe there's some inherent worth in just doing that. It's interesting that the British Royal Society, which was established in 1660, which is around the time of a guy named Newton, who we'll talk about next week. Seven of the ten founding members were Puritans. You know Puritans? These are people, Protestants, who take their faith very seriously and try to lead very pious lives. And so they were very into studying nature for nature's sake. Why? Not just to find out the truth about nature, but to bring glory to God. Interesting. The Royal Society's motto is nullius in verba, which means take nobody's word for it. Do you see, do you see what's happening? It's, it's, it's the rebellion against, just because authority said it in, the, in a thousand years ago doesn't mean it's true. We need, to, we need to test things. We need to test things. Do you see where this is going to lead? If you've had kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When the hormonal poisoning starts in the teenage years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Test everything. Right, the resentment to authority. One of the things they discovered, this is actually um, 
couple of pages from Robert Hooke, who was a great English scientist. Uh, he hated Newton because uh, he was jealous. But he made all these drawings by hand, which are really, it's really incredible. This is the common housefly. This is Robert Hooke. He's dead now, but he did lots of good stuff. <laughs> Here's his microscope. Anybody know what that is? That's a flea. Now, you've got to remember that people had never seen these things up close. And when they started studying them in detail, they were just blown away. This is the head of a common fly. See his compound eyes? They were astounded by the intricate detail that God would put into pests. (laughs) Don't look at your neighbor. That's not nice. (laughs) Hooke said that the more we magnify objects, the more we discover the imperfections of our senses and the omnipotency and infinite perfections of the great creator. It's a nice reaction to have. And then Pluchet... Uh, who was a French uh, guy who also studied things up close, he said the minutest things in nature were appointed to some end and purpose, and the deity is as conspicuous in the structure of a fly's paw as he is in the bright globe of the sun himself. Again, another deep insight from a well-known scientist of the time. And so this Protestant Reformation has been, it's been argued that the Protestant Reformation freed people up to start studying nature without the encumbrances of Aristotle and the ancients to to perhaps prejudice the way they were looking at things. Some people wouldn't even look in the microscope. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe these things had that kind of detail. Same thing happened with the telescope. So now the book of nature is this thing which is worthy of study in and of itself. Who knows what we can find from it? How do you read the book of nature? How are we going to read it? And are there dangers in this newfound freedom of take nobody's word for it? Of course, there are. It's a double-edged sword. So we're going to conclude with two uh, very famous uh, scientists from the 16th and 17th centuries, Kepler and Galileo. Kepler was Protestant, so he didn't get in as much trouble as Galileo did. This is what Kepler had to say specifically about the book of nature, just to prove to you that I'm not making this term up. There he is. Talk about a starched collar. (laughs) I think he used those to pick bugs out of his beard with, but I'm not. (laughs) No, that's a thing for measuring. I just want to see if you're still awake. Kepler said this. He said, I wanted to become a theologian. For a long time, I was unhappy. Now, behold, God is praised by my work, even in astronomy. It is a right, yes, a duty to search in cautious manner for the numbers, sizes, weights, the norms, for everything God has created. For he himself has let man take part in the knowledge of these things. For these secrets are not of the kind whose research should be forbidden. Rather, they are set before our eyes like a mirror, so that by examining them we observe to some extent the goodness and wisdom of the Creator. To which I would say amen to that. Others will perhaps make discoveries I might have reserved for myself, but we're all ephemeral creatures and none more so than I. He had health problems. I have therefore, for the glory of God, who wants to be recognized from the book of nature, chosen that these things may be published as quickly as possible. The more others build on my work, the happier I shall be. That's an attitude you don't see often today in scientists. Very, very humble. And you had to understand, we'll talk about this more next week, Kepler was the first to really start putting equations to the universe, a concept which to you guys is just like, well, that's what you do. It's it's not what they did. When he found an equation that would describe how the planets move, that was literally earth-shattering in many, many ways. We'll talk about that next week. Are you coming here next week? No. Yeah, Lord willing, I will be here next week. Do you want me to come back next week? Are you going to be here next week? I am on the schedule for next week. I am. I'll be here whether I'm on the schedule or not. (laughs) I don't know what the schedule says. 
This Galileo, you can tell he's tired. <laughs> Galileo said that philosophy, which he meant nature, okay? scientists in those days were called natural philosophers. So philosophy is written in that great book, the book of nature, which is ever before our eyes, I mean the universe, but we cannot understand it if we first do not learn the language and grasp the symbols in which it is written. The book is written in mathematical language, and the symbols are triangles, circles, and other geometrical figures, without whose help it is impossible to comprehend a single word of it, without which one wanders in vain through a dark labyrinth. And so he's, this was written after Kepler's work. Galileo was starting to realize he also did work with mechanics and balls rolling down inclines and stuff and trying to find equations to do these things. And so in the 1500s, 1600s, into the 1700s, the book of nature was now seen as something worthy of study. This is what brought the scientific revolution to, to, to fruit. Most of the scientists who were successful in those days were devout Christians. Okay? And they did this as much to honor God, as you saw from Kepler's statements, as, as to find out the truth about the creation. We're going to talk about Isaac Newton early on next week. He wrote this book, which we now call the Principia, and this book, this very famous book, which almost nobody has read because it was so far advanced for the average person, not to mention expensive. But we're going to find that Newton's going to explain a myriad of things which the ancients had no idea about, questions they had, yes. As an example, tides. What causes tides? Do you guys know what causes the tides? Wait, so, wait, so the moon causes tides. Okay, what is it about the moon that causes tides? Gravity. Now then explain this to me. If gravity of the moon causes tides, why doesn't the sun cause bigger tides? Which, which has greater gravity on the earth, the sun or the moon? Which means what? You're saying the gravity, gravitational force of the sun is less strong than the moon's. Well, then why don't we orbit the moon and not the sun? The sun's gravitational force is 160 times greater than that of the moon's. So why does the, why does the moon have the greater effect? The sun does cause tides, but its effect... It's more spread out than the No. But that's, see, that's what I'm saying, is that in school you're taught, well, it's the gravity of the moon. Oh, let's go cut up a cat. You know, it's like <laughs> you're, you're taught things typically in school, but your teachers often don't understand it either. It's very complicated. Galileo thought it had to do with magnetism, which was the end thing in those days. He thought magnetism caused the tides because the sun's gravitational force is much stronger than the moon's. Much stronger than the moon's. We're gonna f- so my point is that it took an Isaac Newton... That was just one of the thousands of things that Newton explained in his book. He was the first person to explain accurately and correctly why the moon is the major cause of tides and that the sun has a secondary influence, even though its pull is much stronger. Okay. So we'll talk about that next week. Do we have time for questions? I was told I can go till 10.10. You have five minutes for questions. Thank you. <laughs> If you, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to entertain them. Uh, yes? We have, we, have, we, have much more, we have much more empirical evidence about this. That's not, that's just, you're talking one observation. I mean, we know that light is bent by gravity. That's been proven. Well, now, the, the, trust me, the general theory of relativity has been proven to be correct every single time. That is an amazing theory. I know this personally because the, what I study, which is binary stars, 
we had evidence that there was something wrong with the general theory of relativity, but every time we test things and we think it's wrong with, with general relativity, it comes out eventually to be correct. Yeah, I haven't heard. I haven't heard about that observation. Okay. Yeah, I haven't heard. Of, I haven't heard about that yet. But I have great confidence in the general theory of relativity because I see its effects all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's how science, this is how science advances, is we, we, right? We put forth a theory, and if there's a problem that conflicts with the theory, then either the theory is wrong or the, is there something wrong with the observations. And so you need to keep checking it. I would argue the theologians have the same problem. You guys are Protestants because of that. Because of a reinterpretation of the scripture, you guys are Protestants, not Catholics. Right? The, the scriptures were being misinterpreted. Right? So we have to be careful. I mean, science can be interpreted incorrectly, and so can scripture. One more question, or I'm going to get yelled at. Yeah, thank, first of all, thank you very much for coming. I, um, so I, I love science, right? Maybe, um, yeah, I hate it. I, I, uh, <laughs> I appreciate, um, I'm not anti-science. I just, it's interesting, right? You know, I, it just seems like, we, so the elephant example, for example, your, your premise that if we can see it, then we can kind of verify it. I just find most people don't verify anything. Like a lot of the times when we're talking about, let's say, the Big Bang, right? I can't, I can't, I, they can show me a picture of the infrared spectrum, the background image that they're using, right? They, they can show me these things, but at the end of the day, I, I find myself feeling frustrated sometimes because I know deep down inside, I'm just trusting them as an authority. And so when I, when I read books like, uh, like 1984, for example, where they make fun of this kind of, they say, like, one time people are told to believe this, and then the authorities tell them the opposite, and they instantly switch. Yeah. I've seen that happen. Well, like, it happens in society all the time. Eat eggs, don't eat eggs, right? <laughs> but let me, so I'll use my wife as an example. My wife, my wife I, we've been married for 43 years. And I've been an astronomer longer than that. So when, I, when we talk about these things, her question is always, how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? So a couple of years ago, she took both of my astronomy courses. His answer always was, you need to take my course. It's really hard in, setting, no, it's really hard in a setting like this in five minutes, an hour, to give you all the background and what he has known and scientifically how they have arrived at these even though you know these galaxies and stars are millions of light years away, there is scientific evidence for it. I took the course, and it blew my mind. It so increased my faith in God. It was incredible. Yeah, you're welcome to come take my course. <laughs> and for, for, no, but the important, again, you have to understand, you can't, when you have a four-year-old who wants to know everything, right? At the two, they're asking whys, and you're starting to hit them. It's like, stop asking why. But... In order, I can't explain calculus to my two-year-old granddaughter, even though I know calculus is correct, invented by this Newton guy, by the way, to solve one problem. So what I know to be like the Big Bang, the evidence for the Big Bang is almost incontrovertible. There's so much evidence. It isn't just the microwave background. The universe itself is in a state of expansion. What's up with that? that Christians should say, that's cool, because if the universe is expanding, that means that the universe had a beginning. Stop. Thank you so much. Can you all thank Dr. Broadstreet? And yes, uh, two two comments. Uh, One, Baptists are not literal in every sense of the word, just to answer that question as a Baptist. Uh, Secondly, he will be here both July 14th and 21st, which is right on your handout, just to make sure. So you will be here. Lord willing. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderfully complex design of the universe and everything that we find in nature. 
Lord, as we study it, may we be Christians who have a faith that seeks answers. Lord, that we, we, would, um, we would appreciate all the work that's been done so we can better understand your massive complexity that is far beyond our imagination and our wildest dreams. Lord, your ways are most certainly above our ways and your thoughts are most certainly above our thoughts. So, Lord, uh, we seek you and we pray that we would uh, better understand you. Thank you for Dr. Brostry, all of his research and his faith. And, Lord, may we uh, be discerning and, 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 and uh, may it draw us by the collar into you as opposed to away from you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.